0: Pull out your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 3, please. If you didn't bring your Bible, it's okay. There should be one in the pew in front of you. Or pull out your phone or tablet or Kindle or whatever else I forgot. And get to Ephesians chapter 3. This morning's message is really kind of a meditation a meditation on Ephesians chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. This has been kind of i sticking in my mind this week, and I wasn't really sure what to do with it, but it's just been on my heart. And so I want to share uh, a message from this text. And I think the heart of this text, if I could kind of summarize it before we even read it, is that this is describing the glory that's going to be given to God through all generations forever and ever, and that the glory that is going to be given to God is essentially in Jesus Christ, no surprise there, but also in the church. So I'm going to throw this up here. We're going to return again and again to it. So still find it, but I'll put it up here for now. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I think the problem with the modern church, if I get to pick on one thing, it's that we esteem the church too little. We say the word church, and what do we mean by it? We mean this building. And when we say the word church, we mean a Sunday morning service that I come to to get something out of. But this is such a a small way of thinking about the church. It's almost sacrilegious in the way that the church is described in the New Testament. And so as we we begin to wrap up this get off my lawn mentality, I really want to focus on the beauty and glory of the church because I think this attitude really gets in our way when we begin to think about the body of Christ or what we call in the scriptures called our brothers and sisters in Christ, the great mystery of our unity in Jesus This week, uh, in fact, today and tomorrow, we are done with the old house. And so Laura and I have moved into a permanent dwelling place for the first time in our lives. We've moved, I think, three times over the past three years, not talking about all the other stuff before that. And so Laura says to me the other night, she says, we aren't going to have to move again for years and years. Imagine that. And she's just like, and I'm like, well, don't jinx it, right? Because they could fire me. Tomorrow, right? I mean, I, could, I might not even finish this sermon. You guys, like, get out. Like, this could happen. And Laura says quickly after that, well, don't jinx it talking like that. <laughs> and I said, well, usually bad things happen. And she says, no, usually good things happen. At least I'm being positive about it. This is the difference in the way that we think. And I immediately retort, well, yes, that is the difference in the way we think. You think like a silly person a great husband, right? And she comes right back at me. Yeah, well, you think like a cranky person. Which is true. Which is true. We're always I'm, I'm she's the person that's always sort of looking at the bright side. I'm always thinking of, like this is going to be doom. Like it's over. You know, put a pin in it. We're done. Like I, I and and so this this title of this series It is so much about the way that I think, but also the way I think that we all are. Because whether or not you're the always positive person, we all have groups of people or people in general or situations that we want to put off and we want to say, stay away from me, right? This is my lawn, get off it. My space, stay away from it. And we all have that kind of impetus inside of us. But last week we began to describe the generosity of God, God is such a generous God. What has he not given to you? And as we looked at Jesus, and Jesus being this, just this strange guy who is wandering about the countryside doing miracles and never asking for anything in return, so much so that we could say that no one could even take advantage of Jesus because Jesus was always just giving it away. And no one could take advantage of Jesus because Jesus believed deeply that there is no scarcity in God. God never has like a, well, I don't have any more to give you. I'm sorry, we're done. God always has more. And so Jesus is never afraid of losing out. He is confident in the abundance that God has. And I imagine a church that grasps that notion, that grasps the generosity of God, that refuses to be taken advantage of because we're not afraid of not having enough. And so we can give and give and give and never be afraid. Imagine a people built on that kind of gift-giving attitude in our lives. So how do we practically live that out if we worship a God of always more? As we read here in Ephesians chapter uh, 3, the God who can give us abundantly more than we ask or even think. How do we live that out? And I think it begins by having a robust understanding of what we mean when we use the word church. Because I think we use it poorly. And I want to talk about that this morning. What do we mean when we say the word church? Because immediately as we talk about church, we immediately step on this notion, right, where we're trying to keep people at bay, whether it's people inside of the church or maybe it's people outside of the church. I know there are people outside of the church that you don't want in here. I know it's true if we admit it. As we begin to, to lay that groundwork of our offense, and yet we see something completely different, as Jack talked about earlier, this attitude in God that immediately is, is driven not only from Genesis all the way through Revelation, but in the exposition and revelation of Jesus Christ, who immediately begins to talk about how God so loved the world. Right? Right? How God so loved the world that he gave Jesus himself and that that Jesus himself is going to be the thing that God is using to unite all things together. So much so that rather than this kind of attitude that we have of get off my lawn, God says, I've got a room with your name on it. That's an incredibly different disposition, isn't it? And I think the invitation of God is that that abundance that he wants to pour out onto us is the sense in which we can have the same attitude that he has. That we don't have to be afraid. That we don't have to be standoffish. That we don't have to push people away. That we can be welcoming with open arms because God has a room with that person's name on it. They just don't know it yet. And that's why Jesus says, Go into the world and what? Make disciples. Make disciples. If you're a disciple of mine, then your goal, your task, what you're called to do is to go out there and get more people and tell them, hey, God's got a room with your name on it. You should come and take it, because it's cool. It's a great room. I don't know what God's house looks like, but I'm sure it's better than mine. Right? So invite people into it, invite people to accept that this is the message, the message of Jesus. And this begins, Very sounds very good and, and beautiful and wonderful, it is, but first we have to begin by destroying something that you have in your heart and in your mind. The Bible has to wreck it, it has to crush it, it has to cast it away. And until you do this, you will never understand the fullness of the glory of this beautiful, wonderful, and eternal word, church. It begins here. Colossians three nine through eleven it says, "Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on a new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator." Oh man, isn't that exciting? Those are exciting words. That means that you are being renewed every day. And so the old ways of living are completely gone as you learn more and more about who God is and what God wants to do and how he wants to pour more of his spirit into your life to change the people that are around you. Every day something new is is occurring in you as you become more and more like Jesus himself. And what does this create? It creates a place. It creates a people wherein here there is not Greek or Jew circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is everything. Christ is all and in all. So what do we see at work in this text? What is functionally or fundamentally changing about the way of life of the people who originally heard this and the people who are sitting here today hearing it now? What does it mean for us? Well, what is being deconstructed here? What is being taken away from these people? so that there's room for the Spirit of God to come in and fill them up. Well, we have Greek and Jew. We have circumcised and uncircumcised. And these are both uh, groups of people, nationality, races. This is Jews and then everyone else who wasn't a Jew. And they are at odds. They are enemies. These are religious groups, right? Some that are circumcised and some that are uncircumcised. They are enemies. And in this text it says that enmity that used to be that dividing line of nation that separated you two, it's gone. It says barbarian and Scythian. We still use the word barbarian, right? An uncouth person, somebody who you definitely don't want on your lawn, which is why we tell the kids to get off, because all kids are inherently barbarians, right? I mean, they're just <laughs> running around, causing mischief. Doesn't matter how sweet they are, they've all got this little seed, this kernel inside of them. And so for them, this is like the outcast. This is the outsider. This is the person we don't want anything to do with. These are those people specifically to the north who are threatening to invade. They are our enemies. There's those barbarians. They are those people, right? Who are your those people? Because God says in the church, they're your people, right? Slave and free. And here we could talk about economics. You've got people who are wealthy enough to own other people. But you also have power at work and authority where someone is in charge and someone has to do what the in charge person says they have to do. In the church, those forms of economic separation, those forms of power and subservience suddenly diminish and they're gone. As we read in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21, everyone submit to everyone else out of love for Christ. So these things are gone. These are being deconstructed. In other words, what we have here is a group of people set out in pen that would absolutely never be at a table together, let alone call each other brother or sister. They are enemies. They don't belong together. And we in this broken world follow this pattern. Now, we don't have groups of barbarians running around portage. Um, I don't think. Um... But we still homogenize, don't we? We still go kind with kind. I look around this room, and I notice there is a dominant color, isn't there? A lot of times we'll look around a room, and there'll be a dominant age. There'll be a dominant socioeconomic position. It's said that the church... Um, is the most divide, or the Sunday mornings, the most divided time in the United States of America? Because we all go to our separate churches where we're comfortable, where it's safe. This, to me, is the antithesis of what we see going on here. By nature, as we homogenize, this is this is the way that broken humans work but unbroken humans people who are being changed by jesus christ these people are being baptized into a new reality something completely new is at work inside of each and every one of you as we read in second corinthians chapter 5 verses 16 through 17 from now on therefore we regard nothing according to the flesh Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And for Jesus, this isn't just platitudes. Do you remember what happened in Matthew chapter 12? When Jesus' mother and brothers, they they show up on the scene. Because they want to talk to Jesus, I always assume this is because they've heard Jesus has gone nuts, and they're going there to shut him up because he's making everybody else look bad. Um, and so, the, somebody comes in and they say to Jesus, "Hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers—they're outside. They want to talk to you." And what does Jesus say? He says, "Who are my mother and my brothers?" And then he passes his hand before his disciples. He said, "Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father is my brother and my sister and my mother." This is incredibly scandalous here today, and I'm not sure that any of us have really grasped that notion unless you have been ostracized by your family for your faith. I had a few friends that had this happen, and they get this. They get this. Because, in one fell swoop, in one line, Jesus renders biology irrelevant, it is not a priority. In a time when, uh, at this age, in this time, taxes were around 80% of your annual income. So I know, I know you all hate the IRS, but hey, it could be worse, right? 80% of your annual income. And there wasn't refrigerators, and there wasn't McDonald's, and you couldn't run a mire if you didn't have something. You had to depend on somebody. And who are you going to depend on? Your family, right? And who are you going to depend on outside of your family? Your clan, or your race, or your nation, And this is how society functioned. I mean, you had to do that. And in order to do that, you immediately had to create barriers and borders. Here are the people that I will not help. And here are the people that I am supposed to help. And so he set those people out. But something new is at work in Jesus. Something strange is at work in this new humanity that he is calling together, that he is, he is building, that the barriers that we used to create, the barriers of, of class or race or gender or economic position or, or wisdom or beauty or, or whatever it is, the barriers that we have created that have functionally set people apart and said, you don't belong, get off my lawn, that barrier is now destroyed because Christ is all and in all. And we get this. We get the point that this is a temporal thing because whose family lasts forever? Whose family will last forever? And, and, and what nation will last forever? And what color won't be touched with another color? Right? I, I, we know by just reason alone that this is all passing away. So what we read in 2 Corinthians there, the old stuff that's passing away, the Bible is inviting us to see the world as it's going to be, as it is being shaped and renewed in the image of Jesus Christ. It says, look at that old stuff and see it as nothing. And put your trust, put your faith, put your life, pour yourself into something that is eternal, something that will not pass away. And what is that thing? It's church. It's church. And I don't think we consider that truth very often. When I say eternality, when I say think of the eternal, fix your eyes on the things that aren't passing away, we think of God. We might think of the eternal body that will be given, resurrected like Jesus. We might think of eternal life. We might think of the coming kingdom of God, which won't spoil or perish or fade. We might think of all of these things, but we rarely think of church. We we recognize, of course, that there will be other people there, Hopefully very few, right? And they'll all look like us. But well, we recognize that there's somebody that's going to be there. But when we sing our songs, I mean, just turn on, the, turn on the Christian radio station and listen to the songs. What do they celebrate? It celebrates you, Jesus, forever, right? But that's very interesting that when we read our text here in Ephesians, which is both now and post-resurrection, what is the celebration? What is the glory of God? It isn't me and Jesus forever. It is the church. It is the church. This is, um, this is why we put such a heavy emphasis on baptism. This is I was telling um, uh, some people this morning, this has been the summer. I've had more conversations about baptism than in my entire life. I don't know why it is this summer, but it's just been the summer of baptism. And, um... This is why we put such a heavy emphasis on it, and this has been puzzling to some people who I've been speaking with. I spoke with a, another minister this week, and he was really puzzled by it. He, he wanted me to, he wanted to talk about it. I didn't even bring it up. He brought it up. And, um, you know, he wanted to talk about baptism. He said, well, you know, it's just, it's obedience to God. Like, we're obeying God. And that's true. I mean, everything I do as a Christian is obedience to God, right? I mean, if I do it because God said so, it's, it's obedience. So that fits everything, but... But we can't just relegate baptism to a moment of obedience. It's so much more than that. Galatians chapter 3 verses 27 through 28 says this: For as many of you as were baptized into Christ you have put on Christ. So there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for all for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So baptism itself is an integral part of our inclusion into the body of Christ. Baptism is like a new womb by which we are born again, where we are coming into a new kind of life where the old has passed away and something new has come. And here we see it is a new family. It is a new existence. It is a new way of being in those old categories by which we used to define ourselves and, 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 and separate ourselves are no longer holding any meaning. So when we think of baptism, a lot of times the Christian church folks we think of it as washing away our sins, and by sins we mean that lie I told, that time I flipped the dude off who cut me off on the freeway. I saw that face. That looks guilty. Um, the time that I did something wrong, you know, I, it's, it's sort of like our purpose, like these sins, they're, be, they're being washed away, but... But look at Galatians. What does Galatians frame this as? It frames baptism as something more than that. It's, it's a washing away of so much more. And so think of baptism. When you were baptized, of course, all those other sins were washed away, but so were your prejudices. So was the gender that separated you from other people. So was nationality. So was race. So was color. So was good looks or bad looks or success or failure. All of these things have been washed away in the waters of baptism and you have come up a new person who belongs to a new people because in Jesus there is new creation. And this we read in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says this is a profound mystery. You could spend your whole life just pondering this one doctrine and never be done grasping and and learning and and seeing more of the glory of God because we just read in Ephesians 3, what's the glory of God forever and ever and ever? It is the church. It is the gathered saints right here, right now. That's a beautiful thought. Let me sidetrack. I I couldn't remember if I talked about this before. So if you remember this, you can take a thought. 30 second to a minute nap but this is a really cool and it's been on my mind all all summer long there it is paul that wasn't 30 seconds you got a few more it's okay this has been on my mind all summer long and so i apologize if this is redundant but i just this has just been blowing my mind says okay so this is romans 8 verses 19 through 21 it says for the creation waits." so he's you know the whole world creation world space everything creation it waits with eager longing For the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For creation was subjected to futility. It didn't want it. It wasn't willing. But because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from the bondage and corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of what? The children of God. We have another word for that. Can you guess? Church. Church church. It's amazing. Just ponder that for a second. All of creation, the the, the mighty mountains, the the rolling plains, the roaring seas, the sun, the moon, the stars, the beasts of the field, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, all of creation is groaning. It can't wait. It's like a woman, it says later on in this text in chapter 8, a woman in labor, and I've been there, she groaned a lot. She wanted that baby out, like, get out of me. All of creation is groaning as a woman in labor and says, please, we want to see the unveiling of what? It's not Jesus here. It's you. It's the church of God revealed in its glory, receiving its eternal body, receiving the eternal kingdom. The creation wants to see it. First Jesus, raised from the dead, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Then us, and then after us, creation. So we understand why creation wants it so bad, because creation wants what is promised to you. So if you look to your left, left, and you look to your right, and you see the Christian sitting in the pew next to you, you see the glory of God. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. Forgive me if you've heard it. It's, it's It's a great quote. There are no... Ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. That's an incredible thought. This mystery is profound. So what does that have to do with our idea, get off my lawn? Let me haul you back to our original verse um, in Ephesians chapter three. Now to him that is God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The church is the glory of God here. So what doctrine do we expose? Well, first we see that the church is the glory of God forever in their being, in their unity, in our worship, in our redemption, in our very existence. We are the visible representation of God's grace of his power, and of his love. And if that is the case, what kind of love, commitment, and joy should you find in one another? How deep the Father's love for us. We sing that, right? You all heard that song? How deep your love for one another is the echo back, I think, How deep is our love for each other because we are so much more than a Sunday morning service. We are so much more than a small group meeting or a Wednesday night program. We are so much more than where you go. We are so much more than all of this. And I encourage you to take just the smallest steps towards grasping that glory. The words of John ring in my ear, which uh, Laura read earlier, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another... God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You remember um, from Matthew chapter five, Jesus said, be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. And he's not talking about being morally perfect. I know y'all, you can't do that. He's talking about love. And if our desire is to love one another, then love is being perfected in us. Not that I have done it perfectly. I don't know if I have failed you yet, but give it time, give it time. I'll let you down, guaranteed. But what is growing in us, Is love for one another growing in us? Is commitment to one another growing in us? Is our desire to spend time with one another growing in us? Is this the glory of God or isn't it? Because if it is, then you should want to be in its presence. You should want to be in its presence. So that leads me to the second piece of the conclusion. How is that practically laid out? How do we accomplish some of these things? If you look at Ephesians chapter 3, I love verse 20. Who doesn't? Abundantly more, God wants to do abundantly more than we ask or even think. How does God do that? I mean, is God just like raining cash from heaven? If you pray, does the Lexus just sort of miraculously show up in your driveway? When you're broken, do angels come and swirl around your head like they do in the children's pictures? How does God actually do all of the things that the New Testament says he wants to do? I heard somebody whisper it. Church, right? Church. Look at all the things that he calls us to do. It says pray for one another. Meet each other's physical needs. Forgive and reconcile. I have to highlight the Oh, it didn't highlight it. Well, that's what happens when you transfer things from Word to PowerPoint. That should be highlighted. And reconcile. Right? Because I've been in church so long that I've noticed people are willing to say, well, I forgave so and so, but um, I'd rather not be in the same room with them. That is not forgiveness. Forgiveness is what God does. And what does God do? God says, I forgive you. Come and come into my house. Join me. That's forgiveness. And until you're at that place with that person, as you're growing in your forgiveness maybe even, until you're there, forgiveness hasn't happened. Because forgiveness and reconciliation are equally important. So forgive and reconcile, support one another in times of need, especially in times of persecution. You know, it's tragic to me that we have uh, churches all over america and we see the church being persecuted like crazy under isis and all these other things and when was the last time you heard politicians really even doing anything i mean i hear some people talking about it now and then right the churches are we sending money over there are we sending things over there is that a burning desire in our heart are we meeting together to pray for the church is being murdered and burned in other places Bear one another burden, sing to one another, do that after you can serenade me out there. Share food and welcome one another into our homes as just sort of a general practice, and then show hospitality to traveling brothers and sisters. I, I was as I was as I read that passage in First Peter, I I was reminded of last week, and when Laura and I were traveling, we went to Lansing because um, my a good friend um, I was in his wedding, and we paid hundred and thirty something for a night at this hotel. Man, imagine if a Christian in that city opened their home to us and we just banked 130 bucks would be awesome for us, but even more so that I would have fellowship with them. That we could break bread together. That we could talk together. We could pray for one another. And I could find out what's happening to the church that's there. And we could have this moment of fellowship. Like this, is, this could be alive and happening. Imagine if we just began doing... The, and this, we're just like scratching the surface. This was just off the top of my head as I was plunking on the computer. This isn't even in depth. God wants to pour out more than we could ask, more than we could think, more than we could imagine. But he wants to do it through you. Why has he called people together? Why has he created a new humanity? Why has he made a new family? Because family helps family. Family needs family. Family has a hard time getting along, but they do it anyway, right? Family. And so what we have here is is I think as we look at the church, we say, man, we're lacking this and this and this. I think that we're only lacking things because we are being codgers and clinging to what God has given us rather than sharing it. And on the other hand of that, some of you, and I address many of our older members here, are codgers about telling us when you need something. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. What if everyone said, you know what, Jesus, I'm good here. Serve someone else. In fact, I remember Peter tried that, and Jesus said, listen, I either serve you if you have no part of me. And And Peter said, well, then bathe me, right? John 13, for those of you who remember and we need opportunities to serve. And the beauty of the church is that there's this reciprocity that's going on where I really need Mark Lytle's truck. I need it, man. Like, you gotta, I got this stuff. I got bikes I got to move. Like, you, I, I need that. And I don't have it. And Mark's got it, and he can share it with me. But there's going to come a time when Mark is in need, and I am able and excited to give freely. There's that reciprocity, that relationship, and I know all of us want to be the gift givers because that is a position of power, and no one wants to be the one that says, hey, I have a need, but sometimes you need to say, I have a need, so that other people can bless you, and if we run into a person who says, I have a need, 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 and we say, you have a lot of needs, that's an opportunity, isn't it? It's an opportunity for us to talk about time management or budget. It's an opportunity for us to bless people with knowledge that apparently you have got because you aren't the person in need in that situation. So we bless them with something that they really need and that is growth in maturity, right? We are here to bless one another because we are the glory of God, not just now, but for generations after generations after generations, forever and ever, amen. When we see the church depicted we see it depicted throughout the New Testament as something that will go on. Other things will fade. Other things will pass away. But I implore you, I beseech you, I beg you to look to your right, to look to your left, to look behind you and in front of you and recognize the people around you for what they are. They are the image of God. And this should fire our mission. We say around here, our mission is to share Jesus. And how important is that? Because if you look at the person next to you and you say, man, they're destined for the glory of God because they are an eternal being, how much more the people out there who are not here this morning, who don't belong to any fellowship, who you know are eternal too, but their eternality is going to be in place of fire, of we And gnashing in teeth. How much should we burn to share the gospel with them? How much should we burn to say to them, God has a room with your name on it? But we don't treat them like they're eternal. We treat them like they're a pain in the butt and they need to get off our lawn. Everything that you see is going to be changed one day, every person that you see will be eternal and glorified, and some of them into darkness, and some of them into light. Let this thought capture your imagination this week. As you think of the church that you belong to, as you think of the Christians you run into, as you think of the people who have never met, and never known Jesus Christ, think of them as what they are, not as what you wish they were. As God sees something of infinite, and undying value. As we come to a conclusion this morning, where are you in this grand story? Are you the person that needs to give the gift? Needs to sign up for something that needs help, that needs to teach, that needs to give? Are you the person that needs that needs prayer, that needs help? Where are you? When you look at the people around you, what do you see? Is there repentance that needs to happen in your heart? Is there forgiveness and reconciliation that needs to happen in this body? What do you see when you look at people? Because you know what you see, what God sees when he looks at you. Same is true of everyone else. As we stand and sing this final song, we offer a a hymn of invitation. If you need to place membership, if you need to be baptized, if you need somebody to pray with, if you need anything at all, I am down here, Jack Down will be down here to pray with you, to walk with you. If you want to wait till after and talk to somebody out here, talk to somebody out here. But let's together grow as the family of God and the body of Christ.